Christ's name, amen. I wonder if this morning, if you can remember a time in your life where a promise was made to you, but was not kept to you. Maybe you can even flash back to your childhood. Certain promises were made to you as a child, and whoever made those promises to you simply did not back up those promises. Or maybe you were the parent, or you were the grandparent, and you made a promise to somebody, your child or your grandchild, and for whatever reason, financial reasons, circumstantial, whatever it was, you could not back up the promise that you made to them. Or maybe your boss promised you a raise and he or she did not deliver on that promise. Or maybe your spouse made promises to you on your wedding day and broke those promises to you. We've all had promises made to us that we haven't kept. And very likely, we have probably all made promises to other people that we have ourselves not And this is really reflective of who we are as human beings. Simply because we don't know the future. And so when we do go out on a limb and we make a promise that something is going to happen in the future, there really is nothing backing up that promise aside from our word. When we make promises, we're not taking into consideration the fact that we're sinful. That finances at that point might be tough. That circumstances a few months from now might be different than they are right now, and so we cannot come through. If we were infinite, if we were all-knowing, if we were all-powerful, then we could probably make that happen. But as it turns out, we're all sinners, and there isn't a person here who is infallible. But the glorious truth is that our God is not hampered by the sin natures that you and I possess. Our God is completely infallible in that He cannot fail. So anything that He says will and must happen. So He is not tainted by sin, and therefore anything that comes out of His mouth, anything that proceeds from Him, must therefore come to pass. He is infinite. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. All of those big words. He is sovereign. And so He understands how all of the future is going to work out because He is the one who has determined how the future is going to work out. And so when God makes a promise, like we find here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it is a promise that cannot be thwarted. It's impossible for God not to come through on His promise. And so when God makes a promise in time, like we find here in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, when He makes a promise in time, it is a promise that has been decided on and determined all the way back before the foundations of the world within the eternal counsel of God. And so He chose and He determined before anything was created what He would promise, what would happen, and then He would bring those things about. God is always the cause of what He brings about. And so anything determined before creation in His counsel is something that is as good as done. And this is really good news for those of us who trust in the promises that God has made to us in the Scriptures. 
This is one of the privileges that we all have as Christians. That all of us, as you scan the Bible and you look and you see and read all of the promises of God that are found there for you, when it feels like our lives are imploding and things are crashing and our lives are simply unraveling, there is always the high ground of the promises of God that we can find security in. When the promises of man they leave us feeling empty, the promises of God fill us with hope and joy and peace. And within our short text this morning, we find a beautiful promise, a promise concerning the Christ. And it comes at the beginning of the history of man when it was so desperately needed. The promise that we find in the scriptures this morning is a promise that would not only have given Adam and Eve great comfort, but it would have given people comfort for generations as they would read these words of Moses written thousands of years ago. The people of God would read words like these and find great comfort to know that a Messiah was going to come. Last week, Jeff walked you through the first part of this chapter, and you remember that the serpent came to Eve in order to deceive her. He slithers his way into the garden. They find themselves next to the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and this tree that God had expressly forbidden them to eat from. And the snake tempts Eve. She bites the fruit and then gives it to her husband, and he's a failure. And what is the first thing that they realize? The first thing they realize is that they are naked. You see, the reason that we all wear clothes is because of all what happened thousands of years ago then. And so the first thing that they do is they realize that they're naked. And so, okay, Eve is suddenly a seamstress and starts weaving together these fig leaves in order to cover themselves. And so they fashion clothes, feeling as though they needed to cover themselves. And then after this happens, they hear the sound of what would have been beautiful to them for the amount of time that they had been in the garden at that point. But they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden. So what once would have been a beautiful sound that their Lord was in the garden walking was now a dreadful Dreadful sound. And so they hide themselves. Now I'm sure this was addressed last week, but who is the snake? Who was the snake that came to Eve? Without a doubt, this is a manifestation of Satan. John says in the book of Revelation, he speaks of the the great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil. And throughout the scriptures, you see this devil consistently rearing his ugly head. He is inciting people against their God. He's tempting people. He's wreaking havoc as much as he can. He had the nations under his sway for so long. See, God had been working with the people of Israel. Satan had his reign in all of the rest of the nations. Jesus says of him in John chapter 8 that Satan had been a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so Satan is effectively the exact opposite of Jesus Christ. It's said of Jesus, is it not in John chapter 14, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But Satan is completely void of any kind of truth. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And this is exactly who Satan is in the Garden of Eden. He is a liar. And so, in this utterly disparaging scene that essentially begins the Bible, Adam and Eve have listened to the voice of the snake. They have sinned. They have committed great treason against their God. 
And we need to be sure that we're identifying their sin accurately. That it wasn't that they got their hand, that got caught with their hand stuck in the cookie jar. It was as though they had committed high treason against God. We need to be very careful not to import our own weak views of sin onto this passage, but to understand that this is what it is. You can hear people jesting and joking about that kind of thing a lot. Oh, are you serious? They bit an apple and that's just kind of the ruin of mankind? That's really what did it? Yeah. It was treason against God. They had broken the covenant that God had made with them. Adam knew the stipulations. He knew what would happen if they disobeyed. But it's within the context of this great disobedience that we find Genesis chapter 3, 15, that is spoken actually not to Adam or not to Eve, but is spoken directly at the serpent himself. And so in the midst of this great treason and the great trouble they had brought upon themselves, the sweet, reassuring gospel words come from Genesis chapter 3, 15. In moments of our lives where maybe a promise has been broken. And that relationship in that moment feels fractured. Sometimes all we need is a few words of hope. A few words of reassurance to know that it's going to be okay. That there is hope. That there is light at the end of the tunnel. And although Adam and Eve had made their dreadful choice. And all of us thus being affected by this choice. The Lord speaks a few words of hope. That would have been an incredible source of comfort to Adam and Eve. Would you look at that verse again? Genesis 3.15. Again, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. And I want you to notice at least four great truths from this promise. Which can... Well, which can't be found on the back of your bulletin because we don't have any bulletins today. But if you could look at the back of your bulletin, these would be your four main headings. The offspring will come. The offspring will be challenged. The offspring will be crucified. And the offspring will conquer. The first one. The offspring will come. There's going to be hostility between you, snake, and the woman. But there's going to be hostility between you and the offspring of this woman, Eve. So now there's some hope for Eve here because what was the penalty stated earlier if she did go ahead, if her or Adam went ahead and ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil? The penalty was going to be death. And the presumption as you're reading through the first couple chapters of the Bible is that they're going to die immediately. You bite the tree, you die. But there's a glimmer of hope here in that God says to the snake that there's going to be an offspring of the woman. Which meant that she would stay alive for a little while longer. She would live in order to have children. So at least for Eve, as she's hearing this, she can have the understanding, I'm not going to die, I'm going to live for at least a season. She deserved death. But God was going to extend her life and allow her to bear children. But beyond that, although there's a glimmer of hope here for her, the life that she has and the life that her offspring has is not going to be a peaceful existence. It would have been if she had had her children and they had not sinned and chosen to eat of the tree of knowledge. They would have had a peaceful existence. But not now. 
Up to this point, Adam and Eve had lived in perfect tranquility. It was peaceful. They didn't have to fear for their lives. They didn't have to scrounge for food. They didn't have to fight off briars. They didn't have the relational difficulties with other people. They lived in perfection. But now, because of the sin that had entered in, there was going to be a deep hostility that God places between the woman and the offspring of the snake. But the question that should come to our minds is who is this offspring going to be? In some of your translations, you may have the word descendant instead of seed. You might have the word offspring there. But chances are, the second time that word is used, it's capitalized. And what the translators are trying to get across to you is although that there is, it is true that there will be hostility or enmity between the evil offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman, there is a specific capital O offspring, a specific capital D descendant, That is going to come. Specifically in the person of Jesus. Christ himself is promised here in the third chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3.15 promises us Christ. With the help of the rest of scripture, we can look back here to the beginning and see that Jesus had been promised thousands of years before he had actually come. Thousands of years before the incarnation, when Jesus takes on flesh and he is born of a woman, he is promised. And not only does this verse say that a specific descendant of the woman would come, this verse gives us vital information about who this descendant is actually going to be when he does come. And so first, this descendant of the woman is going to be a human. He's not going to be angelic. He's not going to be, uh, have some sort of cosmic look to him. He's not going to be uh, some kind of hologram or some kind of spirit. He's not even going to be some kind of mongoose or something that could prey on a serpent. He's going to come as a genuine offspring of a woman, a human. But I can barely get that out before telling you the second implication of this verse that you need to know about this descendant. And that is he's going to be supernatural. And so he has to be human as coming from this woman. But there's got to be something much more than that. He is a man, but he's so much more. Obviously, in order to defeat the serpent, he is going to have to be more than mere man. He's going to have to be more than that. Which demands that this seed of the woman be not only human, but divine, be supernatural. He would have to be more than a mere man because Adam couldn't succeed against the serpent. And it would have to be more than the serpent as well in order to defeat him. And so he would have to be this in order to fulfill this promise. He would need to be man in order to be the offspring of the woman. And it would have to be divine in order to end the reign of the snake. And so we see here that the offspring is going to come. But with the rest of scripture, we know that this offspring is Christ. The next piece I want you to see is that although the offspring will come, the offspring is going to be challenged. God tells the snake there will be hostility between him and the woman. There is going to be a challenge here. Now, if you can understand this in physical terms, you can understand this in spiritual terms. The truth is, this is the truth for most people. There is hostility between people and snakes. Am I right, Larry Dancer? Most people really don't like snakes. Personally, I don't mind snakes that much. If you were going to put a snake or a spider in my bed, I'd take the, the, the snake. But what is it about snakes that's particularly creepy to people? 
Is it that slow slithering movement combined with that quick tongue and then the dead eyes that they have? What's it about snakes that we don't like? Whatever it is, there's hostility there, isn't there? There is constant disdain that stands between us as humans, as the offspring of the woman, and natural snakes. But God, talking to the snake here, is not just speaking about humans as snakes and how we're not going to like snakes for successive generations. He's speaking of the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. He's talking about the enmity, the hostility that will remain between the wicked and the godly. Notice that it is an enmity that God himself puts there. The first words of this verse are, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is something that God is going to do. So it's not just the fact that we're not going to want to cuddle with snakes, but the fact that there is going to be actual spiritual hostility between the snake and God's people, generally speaking, a hostility placed there by God himself as part of the repercussions of the fall. And no doubt all of you this week have felt that hostility. You felt that enmity between yourself and wickedness. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, but you know all too well, like was talked about last week, that familiar tug of temptation and the desires of your flesh, and it makes it so easy to fall prey to. And, and you can feel that hostility raging. And we can feel that in our own souls. And so the offspring, the godly offspring, will be challenged. All of those who are descended from Eve, but specifically, the offspring is going to be challenged as well. The offspring being Christ is going to be challenged by the snake. In our sermon series on Matthew, to give you a quick example, we looked at Matthew chapter 4 and the Snake, or the devil comes, and the Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness, and it was there that Jesus had victory over the temptations of the snake, being directly challenged by Satan. And so it's clear from the promise of Genesis 3.15 that this descendant would come. The descendant would be challenged, but we get a glimmer of what would ultimately happen to the descendant as well, and that this offspring or descendant would be ultimately crucified. God tells the snake, you will bruise his heel. Now, if you think I've been taking some kind of liberty with this passage because you don't find Jesus' name within this text, if you feel like I've taken any kind of liberty, it's at this point, by making the offspring here to refer generally to us, but specifically to Jesus, it's at this point in the verse where it becomes abundantly clear who God is referencing. Look at the verse again in the second half. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what's he talking about? Who is he? Who is the you? He's talking to the snake. So the you is the snake. The you is the devil. This is clear. But who is he? Whose heel is going to be bruised? It's Jesus' heel. It's the descendant of the woman. This capital O offspring who is going to come and his heel is going to be bruised. You get another hint of this over in Isaiah chapter 53, don't you? Where it specifically talks about Jesus' crucifixion. He's going to suffer for the people. And it says, he, Jesus, would be bruised for our iniquities. And one of the bruises that would come to Jesus would be a bruise at the bottom of his foot as he steps on the head of the serpent. 
And so this challenger, this serpent, would bruise the heel of Christ. And a bruise sounds decently benign, doesn't it? A bruise on the heel, compared to a bruise on the head, feels pretty good. I'll take the bruise on the heel, right? But then you realize that Christ receiving a bruised heel is Christ being crucified. So Satan gets a blow in. Jesus dies on the cross. A significant blow. And you imagine the rejoicing of Satan and his forces as they behold that incarnated one dying on the cross. This one who was supposedly going to come and deal him a bruise on the head was now bruised himself on the cross. But Satan had another thing coming. As our verse here projects, Satan won't just get this blow in and then get off without any damage to himself. Satan would bruise Jesus' heel, but Satan's head would be bruised by Jesus. And so the offspring would be challenged. Ultimately, he would be crucified. But friends, the offspring would conquer the snake. And I hope that you have absolutely no doubt in your mind about this fact that Jesus Christ was victorious over the snake in his death and resurrection. It's absolutely victorious. So yes, the cross is horrific. We think and we dwell upon what Jesus had to do in order to ransom us. But in His death, He forgave us of our sins. And in forgiving us of our sins, He took away the power of the devil to accuse us. And this is incredible. That if Jesus had not come, and if He had not died for us, and if He had not given us forgiveness, the accuser, Satan, could stand before God like a tattletale and say, Brandon is deserving of punishment. Brandon did this. Here's his list of sins. Here's the list of things that we have successfully tempted him to do. And he could stand before God and present his case. And I would be nothing but guilty. And you would be nothing but guilty. But the truth is that Jesus has died on the cross. And he has taken away the power of Satan to be able to do that on you. He has taken it away. And so that now you stand as a redeemed sinner. Guilty but forgiven. And because of this, we can live in victory without the taunting voice, without the accuser pestering us because he has been dealt the mortal blow by Christ through his death and resurrection. The head of Satan has been bruised. He has been crushed. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He promises that there shall rise in fullness of time a champion who though he suffers, shall smite in a vital part of the power of evil and bruise the serpent's head. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan has been disarmed. He might still look like a snake. He might still have that look of a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But the fangs are gone. The big teeth are gone. He cannot ultimately take you out. And this is a wonderful, wonderful truth that Christ himself has disarmed them. He has triumphed over them. The author of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of 
a power of death. That is the devil. The Apostle John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, don't you see? The offspring of the woman would come. He would be challenged. He would be crucified. But he would victoriously conquer, dealing that mortal blow to the ancient serpent. Ultimately, he will fully and finally deal with him when he returns at a second advent. But for now, Satan's power has been massively diminished. The gospel has gone forward to the nations. Satan's kingdom of darkness has been crumbling and it will continue to crumble. And Christ will come and return and ultimately decimate every single part of it. The devil is not God. Sometimes we view it that way, don't we? We kind of have the Mickey Mouse cartoons that pop back into our head about the angel on one shoulder and the devil on one shoulder as though they're equally competing forces. But the Satan has been dealt that mortal blow and has been triumphed over. He is weak. He is crawling about. Without half the power he used to have. The devil is not God. He does not have equal power to God. He is a pawn in the plan of God. There is nothing that he can do that is outside of God's plan. This promise of God in Genesis 3.15, whether he realized it or not, would be nothing less than Satan's worst nightmare. The little baby born in the town of Bethlehem would be the one who would crush the head of the ancient serpent. The incarnation of Christ being born of a woman named Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit through her, which makes sense of the fact that he would be both fully human and fully divine. He would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us. What Genesis 3.15 gave us a beautiful glimmer of and something to hope in in the midst of corruption and, and sin and evil, what it gave us a beautiful glimmer of is now seen in one of the most beautiful yet natural processes that we have, the birth of a baby. Friends, this is so important for you to understand that the foe that stands against you is a defeated foe. The Christ has come. The Christ successfully stood against Satan's challenges. The Christ has come and he was crucified and he has stripped Satan of his power and he has conquered Satan, although bruising his own heel, He bruised and crushed the head of the snake. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Praise God for the victory that we share with a promised descendant of the woman. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and 